Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of The Carbon Curve. I'm your host, Naeem Merchant, and this is a podcast about the policies, technologies, and collective action needed to remove billions of tons of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and fend off the worst effects of climate change. So this is our annual episode where we flip the script and basically put myself in the interview hot seat. And the person who's going to be interviewing me today is uh, is actually my wife. And we did this last year and we decided to do this again because that episode last year where my wife Rahima um, asked me a bunch of questions about my views on carbon removal and where I thought things were going and just kind of my personal journey into the space has gotten so much positive feedback. People would come up to me and say they love the episode I did with my wife and would love for me to do it again. And I personally think she'd be way better at hosting this podcast than I am. <laughs> so I'm, I'm glad we're getting a chance to be here and talk a little bit about kind of just what's what's happened over the last year and, and where things are going from here. And I hope this serves as just kind of a fun New Year special on all things carbon removal. So without further delay, my host today is... Rahima Dosani. Rahima is the Director of Strategy, Learning, and Innovation at Global Health Visions, a woman-owned and operated company helping to improve access to global health products and services in low-income countries. She previously worked for the Center for Innovation and Impact at USAID and the Clinton Health Access Initiative in Myanmar and Malawi, which is where we met, after doing strategy consulting for a number of years in New York. Rahima holds a BA from the University of Pennsylvania and an MBA from the Harvard Business School and a Master's in Public Health from the Harvard School of Public Health. She spends her spare time teaching yoga and being a private chef, and she recently graciously agreed to relocate to Toronto, Canada with me. Welcome to the show, Rahima. Thank you. Um, thanks so much for that kind introduction. And I'm really excited to be here and get the chance to do this kind of episode again. So for those of you who didn't tune in last year, just a quick heads up that I stutter. And so I appreciate your patience as I stumble through some of these questions. Okay, so let's get right into it. Um, first question, I would love it if you could give your subscribers a quick update on what you've been up to um, since we last spoke, which was a year ago, almost exactly. So I'd love to know what has really ha- happened personally and professionally since the last time we spoke. Since the last time we recorded. Good point. Since the last time we recorded, which was exactly a year ago. The last time we spoke, we were having a cute brunch on a Friday morning. (laughs) Yeah, that's very true. We had a a great uh, brunch at a cute spot here in the east end of Toronto, which we are starting to explore, which has been fun. Okay, what has happened in your life since we last recorded? Since we last recorded, what's happened in our lives is like we've just gone through a massive amount of change and sometimes it's hard to like process how much we've tried we've done like I, first of all you know I've started this new job at as the executive director of carbon removal canada which I helped help found and get started but but I wasn't in any kind of official capacity until february of 2023 and you know that's was a big change and of course if you're running a, a canadian carbon removal nonprofit that required me to move back to canada and in large part, that was a really exciting but also scary kind of change to make. Uh, we were, you know, in Washington, D.C. 
we had a life there, a home there, and you know all of that, and it, it kind of demanded us to pick up our lives and and relocate. And so that was a big one. Like we moved countries, and you think you know Canada and the U.S. like similar places and all of that, but it's it's an ordeal. Moving countries is is a lot of work. Certainly not for the weak of heart. <laughs> no, especially not when you have a you know a young child. A, uh, you know, a, a budding toddler, like that's not uh, an easy thing to do. But we made it. I feel like we did it. We made the move thanks to your support and your, uh, I mean, ongoing support uh, as we continue to navigate that change. That's been a big one is moving from Washington, D.C. to Toronto and and uh, and finding community and friends here and reconnecting with family. We're lucky enough to have some some family here in Toronto, and though we left some family behind. So that that was hard. And, and then just getting Carbon Removal Canada, which for folks who don't know is, I mean, think of it as kind of a carbon 180, but for Canada, getting that, you know, off the ground, which we'll talk a little bit more about, um, you know, getting moving to a new house, moving, getting our kid into daycare, getting government health insurance. Uh, <laughs> Trying to import our car, which was maybe the most arduous of all of the logistical components that we had to work through. Yeah, totally. Like, like I should have just sold that car and bought a new one up here. Like that was, that was one of the hardest things I've ever had to do. They do not want you buying cars in America and importing them in Canada. They, they sure do don't. not want you doing they that. They sure don't. But we got through it. And, and so that was a big one. And then you, you started a new job, which sounds very cool. I think you have probably the coolest title I've ever heard. Uh, so you started a new job and that's been, you know, there's been a level of upheaval there and, yeah, for sure. I mean, we let's see, we sold our house, said goodbye to my family, yeah. like moved all our possessions and our child up here. Um, you know, we both started new jobs, a ton of change for for sure. And I will say that Canada is is, you know, very different from the States. I feel like yeah. culturally, socially, economically, even politically, it's just been a really, really big change. And I I will say that um, in many ways, it's been super positive and I yeah. think it's a wonderful place to live and a really wonderful place to have a family. Um, mm. So I think, yeah, despite all the the change and certainly a lot of challenges, it's it's been a really good move for us in a lot of ways. I'm glad to hear you say that because <laughs> I definitely felt scared about moving us to a much colder place than Washington, D.C. And I grew up in Canada. I grew up in Edmonton and in Alberta and uh, and then spent a number of years in Vancouver, but I never lived in Toronto before, so I just didn't know what to expect. Yeah, the winters are not nice. No. <laughs> They're not nice here. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I think you, you did a really good job, like, planning for this whole thing and trying to make the move as seamless as possible although i will say next time like try unpacking like just one box like yeah. maybe even just one i was busy <laughs> importing our vehicle from buffalo so just i saying, mean you like, could have just you know one one box I it's carried, really not <laughs> I, I carried a lot of boxes i think the movers did that okay. actually i I think I opened a few boxes too. I'm pretty sure there was zero unpacking that you did <laughs> and very little packing, but that's beside the point. It's been lovely and we're really happy to finally be here and finally feel more settled. So let's get into our next question. Can you share with folks um, just a bit more about carbon removal Canada? 
Yeah, definitely. Um, so Carbon Removal Canada is a policy initiative. It's a project out of the Clean Prosperity Foundation, which is uh, which is a nonprofit here in Canada. And so Carbon Removal Canada is a project of, of that. And um, it's focused on the rapid and responsible scale-up of carbon removal solutions in Canada. And, uh, and so we focus on uh, carbon removal methods that remove CO2 from the atmosphere and store it away for centuries or longer. So a lot of people think about carbon removal. The first thing that comes to your mind is planting trees. And that is like the oldest carbon removal technology that a lot of us can think of. Right. And, uh, and, and that's great. And there are people working on conserving and, and improving our forests and how we manage our forests and all of that. It's wonderful. But there was no one in Canada working on just like these novel carbon removal methods that we're going to need to you know, get to net zero and then get to net negative mm. mid-century and beyond. And so, um, and so a group of us a couple of years ago actually started scoping out what does a carbon removal policy initiative in Canada look like and how do we fill this gap? Because our hypothesis was that Canada has all of these ingredients to be a global leader in the carbon removal space, uh, but it just needed a bit more kind of policy support um, ecosystem support to really help it get off the ground. And so at Carbon Removal Canada, we're going to do basically three things. We're going to help create a strong market signal for carbon removal in Canada. So, you know, how can we get governments and the corporate sector get more involved in creating that important demand signal that's needed to get more carbon removal companies the financing they need to scale? The second thing we're going to do is try to accelerate uh, development of new technologies that can help get new carbon removal projects off the ground and in large scale. And the last thing is we're going to try to enable rapid and responsible deployment. So how can we make sure that we are streamlining the process of deploying carbon removal projects in Canada while also doing it in a way that is responsible and from a kind of technical standpoint, but also from a social standpoint? You know, how do we include Indigenous communities, rural communities as partners as owners of new projects to help define uh, a responsible deployment of carbon removal in Canada and kind of create this industry that we want to see here. And, and all of this is geared towards like we need to get to megaton scale carbon removal capacity in Canada in the next uh, several years and probably need to get to like hundreds of megatons of carbon removal capacity in Canada by mid-century. And so a lot of our work is really focused on making sure that we are taking the steps in order to build that sort of capacity in Canada and potentially even go beyond that capacity. But, but at least thinking about like what it's going to take for Canada to address residual emissions in its economy to getting to net zero uh, by 2050. And then how does it contribute its fair share of historical emissions, which is really the big picture for carbon removal, addressing historical emissions that have accumulated over since the Industrial Revolution. How do we um, use carbon removal primarily for that purpose? And that's just going to require us to get building this carbon removal sector in Canada now, like right away, and introduce this sense of urgency that we need here. And so that's what we're going to do. And we're going to do it through policy because we believe that, that um, informing policy at the federal and provincial uh, level is going to be the most important lever uh, in order to have an impact at this stage of a very new industry. I think that's a really great synopsis of what you and you know the great team at CRC is doing. And I really like the focus on 
making sure that you're not just deploying new carbon removal tech, but you're actually doing it in a responsible and an inclusive way. I think that's great. So maybe one question as a follow-up to what you said, out of all the topics and sort of the, the focus areas that you mentioned for CRC, what are you the most excited about and what are you kind of the most keen and passionate to work on? Yeah, that's a great question. There's there's two. Can I have two? You can have two. I can have two. Okay. So the first is um is creating that robust demand signal through government procurement. Okay. We we want to encourage the government to um to buy carbon removal uh as part of its strategy to get government to net zero. And we're starting to see elements of that through um uh, carbon removal procurement purchase prize that the Department of Energy in the U.S. launched last year, which we can talk a little bit more about. When we talk to carbon removal companies, the big takeaway we get is you know, grants are great, but customers are better. Mm. And if the government can be a customer for us for carbon removal credits, high quality, verifiable carbon removal credits in its own path to getting to net zero, that could stimulate so much progress on their end and unlock the financing that's necessary to help them scale their businesses. The second part of that is that when we look at what are the actual like projects that can benefit from government procurement, there's not that many. There really aren't. A lot of carbon removal projects are still at a very nascent pilot stage. So we need to get more carbon removal projects off to the thousands and tens of thousands of tons per year carbon removal capacity. And in order to do that, we are really advocating for the government of Canada to do some kind of innovation challenge, a carbon removal innovation challenge that would grant companies, especially the ones that are working on you know, newer technologies, next generation direct air capture or uh, enhanced weathering or ocean-based carbon removal methods, some of the more emerging methods that, that wouldn't benefit from Canada's current policy support, the grants that are needed to get new projects off the ground in the thousands of tons per year. So how do we build that pipeline? And that's the other part that I'm really excited about. So the first one around government procurement fits under our, you know, building a strong market demand signal. And the second one is about accelerating technology deployment. And that's the other part that I'm excited to work on. And that's two things that we're simultaneously really pushing for right now. Yeah, I think that's great. And what I really like about what CRC is doing is you're working on both the supply and the demand pieces of the equation that you really need to bring these new technologies down the cost curve. Yeah, You know, you're working hand in hand with the public sector to really create those strong demand signals, but then also working to support companies pennies so that when the demand is there, the supply is also there. And I think that's both of those sides of the equations. It's actually very difficult for companies to do at the same time. So I think it's really cool. Yeah. I mean, like that's exactly why we exist, right? We can't expect an individual carbon removal company to figure all of that out. Right. And frankly, I don't even know if we could expect an industry association to figure figure all of that out. There's some weird market shaping, as we call it, we've called it in, in global health, that needs to happen right. on the demand and supply side in order to accelerate scale up. Right. So here's a question you might not have been prepared for. Mm. <laughs> Tell me more about why 
you were chosen for this particular r- r- role and why you think you were the right person? Wow, that's a great question. <laughs> you can cut this if you need to. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I will. Um, why was I chosen for the role? Obviously, I wasn't part of that decision-making process, but I, I think, number one, I was involved in kind of thinking about what Carbon Removal Canada could be kind of early on. There are people who were involved in this effort that did more than I did for sure in getting this off the ground. But I think that I was attached to this effort as long as a couple of years ago. The other thing is, I just don't think there's a lot of people working in carbon removal specifically in Canada. It's growing, that number's increasing. But I think that I came to the role and I I had had about a handful of years of experience working in carbon removal about 10 years before that, working in the nonprofit sector and like different kind of leadership roles within the nonprofit sector. I'm passionate about this space. I have connections in this space. I'm Canadian. You've uh, done a lot of policy work too, and which I think done, is important. That's true. In global public health, in terms of like advocating for new technologies and innovations around global health with um, ministries of health was a big part of my role. So yeah, I, I think all of those things kind of combine to just kind of... Uh, kind of work in my benefit. And and I think that's why I was lucky enough to be chosen to get to do this. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, I definitely tease you because, you know, you haven't lived in Canada for, yeah. what, 15 odd years. You yeah. like don't know anybody in the government. Yeah. But I've been so impressed at how quickly you've come here and, you know, you've been able to create an incredible team. You've been able to meet and really form strong relationships with so many people in the space. And you've actually started to cultivate a carbon removal community, um, which I, I, I think existed, but maybe wasn't as cohesive. And you've just done an incredible job in the short amount of time that we've been here. And I've been so proud and incredibly inspired. Um, so it's just been really cool to see. That's really sweet. That's really sweet. Thank you. I honestly like a few things though, like the group that I'd mentioned before, like Michael Bernstein, our advisory board chair, and some of the folks that were working with him to just like get the seed funding for Carbon Removal Canada, you know, off the ground and and all of the folks that were involved in just in just imagining what this could look like. There was probably 10 of us or so. Like they they, they have all made this a lot easier because you're right. I left Canada in 2010 to live abroad and work abroad. And, and so to to come back, I, I think it would have taken a lot longer to do what we've been able to do. But because we've had such great connections and then have been able to like recruit some fantastic individuals on the team, like the Carbon Removal Canada's yeah, team. That's they're pretty coming. awesome. They're awesome, right? They're great. And so like that combination of just like amazing supporters and advisors, uh, like our advisory board, and then this great team that we've been able to assemble over the last several months uh, is the reason why I feel like we're off to a, a really strong start. Yeah. Let's talk a bit about what it's been like for you to transition from a consultant who, you know, mm-hmm. really had say over what projects you chose. You kind of got to create your own schedule. Yeah. You know, you had time to work on like a blog and this podcast <laughs> a lot, get a lot more time. What does the transition look like to then becoming the CEO of this initiative? Um, and what do you think has been going well about that? Um, and maybe what hasn't been going so well? It's a hard job. It is a hard job. And I think that 
it's harder than I, I had fully appreciated. You know, I've been like a chief of staff to the executive director of a nonprofit organization and in the past. And so I thought that had given me some insight, but it is harder than I expected. Um, being a consultant, there's parts of that that are difficult, but frankly, like it was a lot more flexible, you know, uh, than, than this is for sure. Uh, I will say that, you know, if it weren't for Lucia and now Tank, Chen, who's helping me with this podcast now and producing this podcast now, I wouldn't be able to do this. Tank takes like 80% of this work. Like I just show up and I speak into a microphone. He's awesome. Uh, and by the way, Tank is the person who helps produce this podcast. And he's trying to get into the carbon removal field more more seriously. And so if folks are, are looking for someone to collaborate with, uh, uh, someone on a project or need some help doing research around carbon removal, uh, whatever you've got going on, I've had a chance to work with Tank for a couple of months now, and he is absolutely amazing. So definitely reach out to him. So he, that's the reason why I'm able to do the podcast. But it, so I guess I wish I had more time to do, you know, more episodes and more planning around the podcast. But I've been lucky to have that help. I, I wish I could do more writing, just like what I generally think about and care about in the carbon removal field. That doesn't have to do with kind of promoting the interests of Carbon Removal Canada, but just kind of my own thoughts and, and reflections on it. But it, those are the kind of things that kind of fall by the wayside a little bit. Yeah, I mean, it's been it's been really interesting and I feel closer to the work. I feel, I think as a consultant, like you're always kind of a layer removed, right, from the impact and from the work. And being able to kind of steer the ship on this new initiative has just given me an opportunity to be more hands-on and more involved and and feel closer to the work in a way that I hadn't in the past, which has been really great. Um, what's been going well? I, I think we've been able to put together like a great team, like I said before, and an amazing advisory board and have just a number of really positive and productive conversations with with folks in, in government and other nonprofit organizations in Canada. Um, staying connected with a broader carbon removal community outside of Canada has gone reasonably well so far. I think there was something I was a little worried about moving to Canada is like, am I, am I north of the wall now? Like, are people going to care what I have to say or are they going to invite me to stuff? And like, that's still a thing that happens, which is nice. So that's all I thought gone well. We had a great kind of launch event, the Minister of uh, Energy and Natural Resources in Canada. So like our Department of Energy equivalent opened our, our launch event and we had a really great launch report go out that talked about Canada's potential to scale carbon removal and what were some of the kind of big picture policy actions required to make that a reality. So all of that, you know, has gone really well. We had a chance to speak to something like close to a hundred different organizations, community leaders, indigenous leaders, carbon removal companies, uh, researchers, academics about carbon removal in Canada. They're like people who are either directly or indirectly involved in this. And that was really, really satisfying to be able to do that and, and sit and listen to what people were thinking about. So that's all the stuff that's gone really well. What's not gone well? I think things have mostly mostly gone well. I don't think things have not gone well. I think things were just harder than I anticipated. I think it was harder to build out an advisory board than I thought. It that would that kind of I thought we, I think we have a fabulous advisory board. I think that getting the right combination of people, perspectives, ensuring we have a good amount of diversity, I think that's been hard. I, I'd actually say the hardest thing that I think for in, in getting this started is addressing kind of having a more diverse group of people involved in the initiative. I think that when I was not running an initiative like this and I was consulting and I was, like I said, kind of a layer removed, I could kind of observe the lack of racial, of, of gender diversity in the climate and carbon removal space 
in particular. And I've realized in kind of being someone who's trying to assemble a diverse team to represent a diverse country, it's, it's a lot harder than I thought. You know, Canada is a very diverse country. Trying to find a way to make sure that the people that are involved in an official and unofficial capacity represent that diversity, I think is hard to do. And, and it's kind of an ongoing process too. It's not just, you know, the team that you have on board, but who you're talking to, what companies you're supporting, right? Like the processes that you're going through. And it's a lot to think about how to make those more inclusive. So what advice do you have for young leaders? I mean, it's rare that you find somebody in their thirties who is, you know, the executive director of a non- profit. Um, do you feel imposter syndrome, not having the like 40 years of experience that many people in this role typically tend to have? Yeah, definitely sometimes some imposter syndrome, right? Like I, I think that I am probably younger than the average executive director of a nonprofit. And I definitely don't look like the average executive director of an environmental nonprofit. And, you know, I think like that's, that's something that I continue to kind of figure out as I go along to just be like, hey, let's rethink what it means to, you know, run initiatives like this and take on leadership roles like this. And, and how do we define kind of what an executive director of a nonprofit, what does that actually look like? So it's an opportunity to do something different. And, uh, and that's how I try to look at it. But in terms of just like advice for other folks that are wanting to find kind of leadership roles in the space, I, I think, I think the, the key is, is that you don't have um, you don't have to have all the answers. Mm. I think that it's very tempting in a leadership role to try to have all the answers, to have things figured out before they're um, really fully baked. I think there's a lot of pressure, right? In a leadership role, people kind of expect you to know the answer to stuff. I think that's made the job a little bit more difficult. And I think, like when I reflect on it, you know, my job as a leader is not to come in and have all the answers. My job is to come in, listen to what people are concerned about, and recognize that there's a whole suite of potential answers. Sometimes we don't even know what the right question is. That's what I was, you know, thinking. I feel like your job is more to ask the right questions. Yeah, right? Like, it's just to ask the right questions and, and create the right prompts that are going to help people who work with me, whether they're on my team or whether they are people that we collaborate or partner with or whether they're people who don't agree with carbon removal. Right. It's actually sometimes create that tension or uncertainty and let people work through it. And as a leader, that's sometimes what you have to do. And at least that's what I've learned and what resonates with me. I don't know that I do that very well. I think I feel pressure to be like, well, here's the answer. And I feel like a lot of people in in leadership positions do. I feel like that's pretty common for yeah. sure. And I feel like you do struggle to ask for help too. And I, and I have really noticed you make a concerted shift to really be more vulnerable and admit when you don't know something or when you do need support. And I think that's been an incredible evolution of your leadership. Well, thanks. I, I'm glad you think that. I, I worry that I'm not not seeking that out enough and I think I think I certainly need to to try to do that more that's that's great um okay let's shift gears a bit so as you look back over 2023 what do you feel like some of the biggest 
highlights in the carbon removal field are? Some of the biggest highlights in the carbon removal field. As you look back over 2023. Looking at 2023. So a few things kind of come to mind. And I did, this is a part where I did jot down a few notes because I wanted to make sure that, that I could speak to this a little bit. But I think from a policy perspective, the thing that I really look back on is the kind of launch of the Department of Energy's um, carbon removal purchase prize, because this is really the first time a government will effectively act as a customer for carbon removal credits. And and I'm not sure how those carbon removal credits will be treated as part of the program design or all of that kind of stuff. But this idea that the government is a potential customer for carbon removal is really powerful because a lot of us who work in the carbon removal space know that this is where government needs to go. And this purchase prize is really at the vanguard of that whole effort. And so I I think that was a big deal. It's not a big purse of money. It's $35 million, um, you know, in total, but it, I think sends a very strong signal to the market. And I think that's huge. And so I think that's, that's a big policy win. The other one has just been around the implementation of the direct air capture hubs program. So this is that kind of multi-billion dollar, direct air capture, um, capital support to get direct air capture hubs opened up across the United States. This is another Department of Energy initiative. Approaching it in a hub model in the sense that you can kind of crowd in supply chain partners to help accelerate scale up. You can uh, create access to different communities so that you can engage communities more effectively. I really like this hubs model for for carbon removal and the direct air capture hubs uh, program is really exciting in that it is being implemented now. And, and I think that's really uh, like a really big deal. And then, and then finally on the policy point, like we continue to see that the, the EU advance, you know, a carbon removal certification framework, right? We're seeing the EU try to figure out clear definitions around carbon removal and, and work through the messy process of doing that um, before they kind of rapidly scale. And you see the U S kind of taking a different approach where they're throwing a lot of money whether that's this purchase prize or DAC hubs or 45Q or whatever the case is. But we're seeing the U.S. government spend a lot of money investing in the growth of the carbon removal sector. And we're seeing the EU try to figure out the role and definitions and standards around carbon removal through the certification framework process. So those are my kind of thoughts from the policy side. From a markets perspective, we've seen some really high profile commitments to buy carbon removal from groups like Microsoft and BCG and others. So we've, we're starting to see as well, like long-term offtake commitments from the likes of Frontier. Um, the, the voluntary markets are really stepping up with these um, with these focused purchases of carbon removal. And then from like just a technology perspective, I think I think it's a really meaningful milestone that, that Heirloom, a direct air capture company, brought online a, a thousand ton per year direct air capture facility. That's the first commercial direct air capture facility in in the United States. We need to see more of that. I think we need to see more carbon removal facilities that are operating in the thousands of tons per year um, capacity level. So that's that's kind of the last piece on 2023. And what do you think it's going to take to get to that point? You know, I think more, more focused funding for carbon removal projects at that level, right? Like we see a lot of carbon removal efforts in their really early stages. They're still at pilot stage. They maybe don't even have their first-of-a-kind facility built. And I think that if we can we can move more capital towards getting thousands or tens of thousands of tons per year carbon removal projects off the ground across the entire suite of carbon removal 
technology. So not just direct air capture, but also on biomass-based methods, on ocean-based methods, uh, you know, mineralization, enhanced weathering. All of that stuff, I think, is going to be really important to do. And I think that there just there needs to be that um, that capital injection to get a thousand or ten thousand ton per year facility off the ground, and then that facility is well positioned to grow to hundred thousands or a million tons per year thereafter. But we just need to get over this hump and get into the thousands of tons per year capacity. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I feel like over the last couple of years, the field of carbon removal in general has become more almost mainstream and more recognizable and kind of less weird sounding (laughs) to a lot of people. Do you feel like that's been the case as well? And how do we keep going down that path where more people are recognizing this as a kind of a major tool in the fight against climate change and where more people are open and kind of accepting of, of this? Yeah, that's such a good question. Yes, I, I think carbon removal has been kind of more mainstream than it has. I think all the things I talked about in terms of the accomplishments in 2023 point to carbon removal becoming more mainstream. I think all of the things that are happening right now can need to continue happening. But I think there's a lot of work to just continue telling the story of what carbon removal is, you know, why it's important, why it's different from carbon capture and storage, you know, uh, how we can do this responsibly and talking to more people outside of the carbon removal echo chamber. We have to kind of break out of and start talking to people in different pockets of the climate response, whether in government or private uh, private industry or nonprofits or communities uh, and putting carbon removal on that agenda, I think is going to be is going to be a big part of that. There's just so much more work that needs to be done around around that in order to help kind of mainstream this idea and, and make sure that feels less like science fiction to people. Right. And like actually having people realize that carbon removal is not going to take away from current efforts towards reducing our CO2 to emissions, but is actually dealing with removing existing um, CO2. And those things are both necessary and critical. Absolutely. That's so true. And we need to do that and do that in a way that is unapologetic about the reasons we need carbon removal, but recognizing this does not take away anything from what we need to do around reducing emissions. Right. Or should not. So then, you know, that that all being said, so what are the things that you're kind of the most excited about in the field as you look forward now to 2024? I'm really excited about 2024 and what it could bring for the CDR space more broadly. Um, you know, some of those things are, are just like kind of exciting milestones that I'm personally excited about. One of them is, you know, we'll see the next stage of XPRIZE winners announced. This is the kind of $100 million Elon Musk carbon removal prize uh, operated by XPRIZE and see what companies are advancing to the next stage of this $100 million competition. I think that's going to be really cool. You know, second, we're going we're gonna to find out more about the companies that advance to the next stage of the Department of Energy's purchase prize that we talked about that was launched last year. So I'm really excited to see which companies uh, are going to get to that next stage of the of the purchase price. That's another thing that I'm looking forward to. The third thing is just like we're going to realize some of the exciting policy progress that we've in Canada for stuff that's going to come online in 2024. So in 2023, the government released its carbon management strategy, and we saw a really clear and exciting role for carbon removal to play at a high level uh, from the government and. There's a number of policies that have been in the works that I, I think we'll see the light of day the, and, and will be operationalized. One of those is the uh, 
the carbon capture utilization and storage investment tax credit, which sets aside uh, a 60% tax credit on capital expenditures for direct air capture. And that's a big deal. Like that's, that's going to attract a lot of companies to set up direct air capture facilities in Canada. And while I, I think that there's probably more policy support that's necessary to make sure that something like that ITC is competitive with the full suite of policies that are available in the United States around direct air capture, it, it's a really strong start. We have a clear carbon management strategy and a role for carbon removal to play. We have an investment tax credit for direct air capture. You know, we want to see, you know, things like government procurement and an innovation challenge come online that we've talked a lot about. Um, but that ITC, I think, is going to play a big role in attracting companies to Canada with, uh, with a policy incentive like that. So those are kind of my main things. Of, uh, I'm excited about 20, in 2024, but I'm also just more broadly interested in what new initiatives like uh, the Carbon to Sea Initiative or Cascade Climate or the Ocean Frontier Institute or other groups that are looking to kind of scale and research emerging carbon removal solutions. So like specifically in the area of ocean alkalinity enhancement or enhanced rock weathering. Um, I think that there's a, a, a lot of exciting potential around some of these, for lack of better word, kind of open systems carbon removal methods. And it's been really exciting to see the formation of things like Carbon to Sea and Cascade Climate to work through some of the market or scientific challenges or opportunities that exist with these emerging carbon removal methods. And I am excited to see what they come up with in 2024 to help advance these other carbon removal solutions. And the initiatives you just mentioned, those are all Canadian initiatives, aren't they? No, they're, they're, they're global in scope. Oh, great. Which is great. Um, Ocean Frontier Institute is based out of Dalhousie University in, in Nova Scotia, but the others are, are global and there's an opportunity then to just share what we learn across That's so great. Across countries. Yeah. And, you know, I have to say, um, when we were in Ottawa for the official launch of Carbon Removal Canada in November, it was so amazing and inspiring to actually meet the f- founders from a lot of these Canadian CDR companies and hear about the incredible innovations that folks here in Canada are working on. I mean, it was so inspiring and interesting. And it just feels like there's so almost so many more companies in Canada working on this stuff. And yes, it's in the early stages, but am I, am I correct in that? It just seems it was, it blew my mind. Yeah, you're totally right. I mean, we've mapped like, albeit across carbon removal and carbon utilization, 70 companies in Canada, you know, like that are all at the early stages. Our proposal to government is like, these companies are going to need support to get to the next level. But there are 70 companies in Canada that could benefit from policy support, at least that we know of as of six months ago. And so, yeah, there's an energy here around carbon removal that is really exciting. It's it's incredible. And you know, what do you think really, what is like the one biggest thing you think needs to shift in order for Canada to kind of realize that potential and really become a leader in the CDR space? Yeah, that's a great question. It's very tempting for me to be like, oh, we need great policies, you know, and and we've already also kind of, you know, cataloged all of the of policies that are in place in Canada, as well as the natural strategic advantages, right? Like, if you think about what it's going to take to get to a gigaton scale carbon removal industry, we're going to need, you know, in order to do that, my theory is that Canada is going to need to play a big role. Canada mm-hmm. has 
the second largest landmass, the longest coastline. It has an abundance of clean energy, a skilled workforce, all of those sorts of things. So there's a lot that Canada has going for it. I think we have a strong start on the policy side of things we need to kind of build momentum on. But really, I think what it's going to take, if I had to boil it down to one thing, it's going to need us to, in Canada, to adopt a bit more of an entrepreneurial or risk-taking mindset. Whether you're you know, an investor, whether you're a policymaker, whether you're an innovator and you're interested in carbon removal, I think that, you know, we are going to need to embrace the kind of um, entrepreneurial approach to carbon removal that we've seen in the United States in order to translate all of these advantages that we have. Um, So if I had to boil it down to one thing other than policy, that's that's what I would say. I think that makes a lot of sense. And I feel like I don't know. Do you think that's a cultural difference between Canada and the States? I may be treading into dangerous waters here, so <laughs> no, I, let me know. Uh, maybe a little bit. I, I think there might be a little bit of uh, a, a greater degree of risk aversion in Canada, or which is why I think for a group like Carbon Removal Canada, we have to make the case very clear um, from a market perspective, from a, a, a policy perspective, from an economic perspective, why you want to scale carbon removal in Canada. I think because Canada is a smaller country than the United States, um, you know, it requires us to kind of focus in on what is the problem we're trying to solve and how do we leverage our resources in order to solve it. But but really, I think we need to dive in. Yeah. Yep. Okay, so maybe our last question for today I'd love to turn it a little personal and kind of hear about your personal priorities that you are thinking about as you go into 2024. Yeah, that's a good... So No carbon removal talk. I'm not allowed to talk about carbon removal. None. Mm. So personal priorities going into 2024. So for me, I think it really boils down to finding sanctuary. I don't know if that makes sense. I can Tell us more about what that means. When you're in you know, a leadership role of any kind, I think the folks are able to effectively survive in any leadership role and continue to be good family members and good friends uh, is that they find sanctuary outside of their work. They, and that can mean they have a hobby that they take up. It means that they meditate. It means that they, I don't know, go ice skating. I, you know, like it could mean a lot of things. It means something different for everyone. But like, how do you carve out some time for yourself that is, you know, walled off from your professional responsibilities so that you can keep things in perspective in your professional role, but more importantly, like keep things in perspective in your family and your personal roles. Um, And remind yourself that even though you're kind of as an individual leading a certain initiative or organization or whatever the company or whatever that is, that that's a role that you play. It's you not know, your whole identity. It's not your whole identity. And that separation is really, that's really important. And I don't think I've made sufficient time for that. And it, again, it can be anything. It can be exercise. It can be meditating. It can be whatever. But if you're able to find that sanctuary, I think it helps you with that um, role identity uh, distinction, which I think is important in any in any kind of capacity that you're taking on, it helps put things in perspective and hopefully energizes you for not just your professional 
uh, responsibilities, but like your personal and family responsibilities. Um, so for me, just like how do I how do I show up more for our son, right? Um, how do I show up more as a husband? You know, my folks live here in Toronto. How can I how can I show up more for them? And that's a little harder to do when I haven't been able to effectively compartmentalize this role that I play in starting up this new initiative. And I think that's that's an important personal priority for me in 2024, just because I think it will have ripple effects across other aspects of my life. But there are other things that are important that I probably want to focus on, but I, I it almost feels to me that if I'm not intentional about that, um, it's not going to happen. And I think that it's going to make a lot of the other things I'm trying to do more difficult. I think that's such a great reflection. And, you know, we are two, three days away from 2024, two, day, three, two days away, three days from your birthday. Um, so I, I almost challenge you, like, what, what commitment do you want to set for yourself in terms of creating and establishing and maintaining that sanctuary? Well, first, I like dedicating some time to figuring out what that is and then finding an accountability partner, not to put that on you necessarily, <laughs> <laughs> uh, to help me help me make it happen. I think that's important. So just to clarify, what you're saying is that when you come home from work and we have a screaming toddler mm. that yells until we feed him copious amounts of carbohydrates, mm-hmm. that's not sanctuary? That's not sanctuary. Got me. it. Got it. Got it. Yeah. He's <laughs> wonderful. Uh, love him to death. Uh, He's I, pretty tiring, though. I will say that, like, <laughs> I will say that, like, I come home from work and the, the, the couple hours I get with him before he goes to bed are often, like, adorable, funny, all the things. Not the most restorative. No. <laughs> no I would not call those two hours before bedtime restorative, no. tranquil, <laughs> you know, reflections of a sanctuary. Okay, I think that's a, I think that's a really good reflection, though, and a, a really important thing to commit to in order to fulfill all these personal and professional responsibilities that you have. Yeah. And, and try to enjoy them all. More, yeah. So that they don't feel like just jobs. Responsibilities. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, totally. so, that's- so I'm going to ask you yet again, another question that you're totally unprepared for. Um, when you envision your next year, what is the word that you want to embrace? body this year intentional i love it and the reason for that is that 2023 has been an exciting year but because of all the change i almost feel like i've been just kind of reacting to all the stuff that's happening you know and so hard to be proactive yeah hard to and and hard and easy to kind of it's easy for intentions to get away from you and you're just kind of in survival mode sometimes. Yeah. You know. Um, well, great. I really appreciate you taking the time to have this conversation. I think folks really appreciate the chance to kind of hear about your thought process and your personal reflections. Thank you for being a sport as I pepper you with the questions you are not expecting that were not on our script. And I just, you know, again, want to say how proud I am to see everything that you've done and everything that you've been able to 
deal with and get through and all the successes and accomplishments that you've been able to have despite the the adversity over the last year. So, well, yeah. thank you for just really the support over all of the obstacles. Like I just wouldn't have been able to, I wouldn't be able to kind of look back so positively on, on 2023 and feel as energized about 2024 if it weren't for your support. So thank you. Of course. And it is true. Um, and I'm going to cut us off here before we get too sappy and no one wants to listen to us next year. <laughs> so with that, um, we, you know, wish you all a fantastic 2024 and look forward to um, making more m- memories and more podcasts in the f- future. I love that. Thanks so much, Rahima. Sure. Thanks so much, all. 